Welcome to the Planet Laundry Podcast. This message is brought to you by Planet Laundry, the magazine of the Coin Laundry Association. In this episode, Brian Wallace, President and CEO of the Coin Laundry Association, interviews Brian Brunkhorst, owner of Advantage Laundry, a chain of stores in California's San Francisco Bay Area. In this How's Business segment, the two Bryans discuss Mr. Brunkhorst's transition from a high-tech job in the Silicon Valley to being a multi-store owner and some of the keys to Brian's success in his business. Mr. Brunkhorst was the recipient of the CLA's Member of the Year Award in 2013. He authored the book, Secrets of Buying and Owning Laundromats, and he currently serves on the Coin Laundry Association's Board of Directors. Hello again, uh, this is Brian Wallace from Coin Laundry Association, and welcome to the How's Business podcast, where I take my 29 years in the laundromat business and talk to my friends about their laundromat journey and try to share some words of wisdom and best practices with all of you listening. So I appreciate you joining us again this time. My guest uh, this time around is Brian Brunkhorst of Advantage Laundry out in the Bay Area in California. Welcome aboard, Brian. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. Terrific. Well, you know, uh, we've known each other a long time, and I, I just thought we'd have a, a conversation uh, about your kind of your journey through the business. You know, maybe, but let's kind of start where we are now. Is it five laundries? It's more than that now, isn't it, in your Vantage Laundry family? Yeah, we've grown a little bit uh, over the last few years. We're up to eight laundries now. Eighth one is in the process of finishing a remodel. We should be open with that in the next month. Terrific. Well, I know that we're going to get more into, you know, kind of the kind of the main values that you adhere to with those eight locations. But let's kind of go back in the Wayback Machine here, because, you know, certainly we've got second and third generation folks in the industry, but almost everybody who gets into the business these days has uh, some kind of prior life in business. And if if I'm remembering correctly, you were a road warrior out there doing uh, computer engineering and crisscrossing the world. And uh, tell us a little bit about that part of your life and maybe how that led to, uh, maybe I'm going to try something different, maybe the laundromat business. Right, right. So uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I, um, when I graduated college with a degree in international business management, naturally, I decided during my last semester of college to take a real estate appraiser course in addition to my college stuff. And I graduated and became a real estate appraiser. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and that was back in 91. I graduated in December of, ni- well, January of 91. Started right off doing appraisals for the refinance market. And and January was such a great month. I was doing five, six appraisals a week. I was making some money. I was feeling great. And then back then, the uh, the head of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, in February decided, hey, it's time to start raising interest rates. And I, it was literally like he just took the boss and just turned that thing right off. <laughs> and I, I think I did for the month of February, four appraisals for the entire month. And, yeah, and I realized, Time for a new plan. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a good plan. So... So while I was still trying to 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 get business doing appraisals, I went to work for uh, a local television cable company called Viacom Cable. And I started off on the phones as a customer service rep, and within three months they put me out in the field as a 
as a cable installer. So I was the cable guy <laughs> driving around in the truck, climbing up on, on top of ropes and then slinging cable back and forth. It was crazy. Uh, and it became a tech shortly after that because one of the guys at the cable company said, hey, you actually understand this stuff. And so they, they taught me how all the equipment actually works. And and I started fixing that stuff. And then then the company, literally within a year of me joining the company, I went from, from customer service rep in a cubicle to installer to tech. And then they brought me back in as a regional MIS coordinator for the San Francisco Bay Area. I, I was responsible for one and a half million subscribers. And, and they put me in an office. And and my coworkers, my coworkers were like, oh, you were just sitting next to me, and now you're in the office. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> and I said, getting a college degree is very important. <laughs> uh, but from there, then then the um, the manufacturer, the cable equipment company, they they swooped me up and they said, be a field engineer for us. And so that's where the road warrior thing happened. I I went to work for them. And literally for three years, toured the uh, countryside. I was putting in 150,000 miles a year domestically on United. That's yeah. that's a lot of miles. Uh, Hard to do. <laughs> yeah, a lot of miles. You know, and of course, when I was home, my wife, she just wanted to go on vacation somewhere. So I was always somewhere. I was never at yeah. home very much. But but it was a lot of fun. I, I really love traveling and. Got off the road. At, we had our first child, Brooke, and while while I was traveling a lot, and then I started missing all of her first, like the first time she walked and the first time she talked, and and then when my wife got pregnant with our son Brandon, I said I, I can't miss all the first again. And I got off the road and went to work as a hardware and software network engineer in Silicon Valley at startup companies and kind of worked my way through through, you know, beginning QA engineer, working my way all the way up to a manager position in Silicon Valley with several different startup companies and until I eventually left the corporate America at the end of 2008. See, in 2000, prior to my final exit, uh, I was working at a startup company in 2000, 2001, 2002, the whole dot-com blow up. And... This startup company, it had over $230 million of funding. So you could think, well, that's a lot of cash. It should be just fine. They blew through everything, everything. And and luckily, I, I was one of the core engineers. And so they laid off. We came back from Christmas uh, after the Christmas break in 2002. The head of engineering called the entire engineering department into the conference room for a normal weekly meeting. And he said, well, I hope you all had a great Christmas break. Uh, I got bad news for everyone, everyone, including myself, which is the VP of engineering. We're all getting laid off at the end of the month. Uh, We'll have some recruiters here to help you find new jobs, you know, and good luck. (laughs) Yeah. Another another time for a new plan, right? So yeah. so how so how does that bridge into uh, looking into small businesses, looking at and having laundromats pop up on your radar? Exactly. Well, and so that's the whole point, right? And so from there, it's like that was the first time I'd ever been let go from a position, right? I always excelled at all my jobs, 
you know, and to no fault of my own, you know, I was, I was going to get let go. And I thought to myself driving home that night, it's like, man, I have to have something, something on the side that that's a safety net for our family. I mean, if my wife or I, for heaven forbid, ever get laid off again, at least we have some capital coming in that's kind of passive that doesn't require full-time work. And I looked at all these different types of businesses. I looked at, we looked at dating companies. We looked at sandwich shops, you know, McDonald's and Subways and Quiznos. And we looked at blind covering companies and everything we looked at. We've got all these different industries and franchises and this and that. Everything we looked at required the owner to put a substantial amount of money into it, which is okay. We had some cash, but also required them to work anywhere from 50 to 60 hours a week or more. And I realized that with those businesses, you're just buying a job. Mm-hmm. At least you could be your own boss, but I already had a career. I didn't want another job. I wanted some passive income, something I could work on the side. And then I was reading a book by Robert Kiyosaki and he mentioned, you know, you have to build your business up to where it becomes passive. But there are a few businesses out there that that almost passive right out of the chute. And one of them was laundromats. And, and then I remember back in the college days, Back in college, going to a laundromat, and I never see the owner in there. And and every now and then, I'd see him collecting money into five gallon buckets, you know, from Home Depot, whatever. And I and I and I always thought, wow, that's so much money, you know. And I always wondered what it would be like to own a laundromat. I started looking into it, and back then there was there was really no classes or anything. You could you know barely find anything on the internet that you could find out how to actually get into these businesses. So. Uh, in 2003, we actually wound up buying our first laundromat, and we've kind of grown that business. I mean, literally, we took that first laundromat. I overpaid, naturally. You know, the seller said it was doing one thing, and it was actually doing one thing minus a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the first one to start that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let me tell you, that first laundromat was great to cut my teeth on, right? Uh, it wasn't the most expensive laundromat. I think I paid 150000 for it. But then, but I mean, it didn't even have a change machine. Think about that. It did not have a change machine. It didn't have a soap vending machine. Half of the equipment didn't work. You know, typical, as our good friend Brian Grell would call, a zombie mat. And mm-hmm. so, you know, my wife and I, my wife and I, we bought that store. We ran it. My idea was, let me run it for two months just to get a baseline of how the numbers are. And then we'll shut it down and we'll replace all the equipment and make it look a lot nicer and and see what happens. And so we did that, replaced everything, stretch, stretch, stretch. I mean, gosh, we, we maxed out every credit card we had. We borrowed some money from the distributor. I mean, we really, we were all in. And I was right. still out of work. I had no job. So we were all in. I had no income. I, thank God my wife was working. <laughs> yeah. And during the remodel, I wound up getting a job back in Silicon Valley again. So the pressure was off. We opened the doors and the store was making prior to prior to us doing the remodel, it was making about $4,800 a month. Within six months after the remodel, it was, it was grossing 10500 
And I knew I had something because it was actually netting about 4,700 by then. And it's like, oh, this is perfect. Because all I wanted was 4,000 a month. And so, and of course, by, you know, and then of course the, the numbers have done much better since continuing to climb, but that was, that was it. And I went back to work and this is 2003. It was back to work. So we didn't need the money. We just used all the money to pay off all the debt. And three and a half years later, we had a store that was netting 7,000 a month, replaced my wife's income from her job. And she got to retire from corporate America and be a stay-at-home mom for our now three children. <laughs> right, right, right. That's the story. That's the story. Well, you know, in, in uh, you know, you were you know kind of looking for something passive, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, at least in my mind, the difference between passive and absentee. In other words, a lot of people, you know, are under the impression that this is an absentee business, and and I I think there's a difference. <laughs> Certainly between something that you would characterize generally as passive. That doesn't mean that you're not uh, working your tail off, that you're not there, that you're not doing the things that you need to do. And you know, what I hear from a lot of my friends in the business is that you need to put the time in. But what's attractive about the laundromat business is the flexibility, right? You, you, can, you can take your kid to school. You can, you can coach Little League and still, but you're still putting in uh, the time that it takes to, to grow a business. So how, how would you kind of help help us di- differentiate kind of that notion of absentee versus something that you were looking for to be uh, passive. Right. So, I mean, you have to think, you know, any business requires a certain amount of time being spent in the business. Somebody needs to be there to do something, right? And then you take a look at all the different, all the different chores related to that business. You know, so in the laundromat business, you've got, you've got customers. Well, first you got to open the doors in the morning. You got customers going to come in. They're going to use the equipment. They're going to make a mess. So that stuff needs to be cleaned up. You need, you need, you know, this is just the operational point of it, right? When things go wrong, machine malfunctions, those customers need to be taken care of. You've got, you know, floors need to be swept and mopped and, and, and the store needs to be closed. That's like a daily thing, right? Then you've got maintenance and stuff like that that needs to happen with all the equipment. Then that's, the, that's just the, the general operations of a store. Then you mm-hmm. have all the marketing and, and, and the bookkeeping and all that stuff, the office work, as my wife likes to call it. There's a right. lot of stuff else outside of the business that has to happen. Well, the stuff that has to happen inside the store is kind of time time dependent, right? So a lot of people that start off, they they do all that work themselves. So, you, you know, the proverbial chef, uh, chief chef and bottle washer or something like that. If you can find people to do some of that stuff for you as the owner, that helps to reduce your amount of time you physically need to be there. And so my thought right along the beginning was let's hire some people who can do the, the customer service stuff helping the customer keeping the place clean during the day. And then I only need to come in to fix machines and, and collect the money. And, and then also I need to do all of the backend stuff, the marketing and that kind of thing. And so the idea was to be able to run it more. It's not completely passive, right? I mean, so active income is when you physically trade your time for dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Passive income is when you're receiving money that you didn't spend time time making, right? So, so, and the absentee owner is is the one that that has an unattended laundromat 
and and they might have like somebody that comes in at nighttime to to sweep up and and wash you know wipe down the machines and and mop the floor uh, and they come once a week just to collect and fix stuff right that's absentee partially attended is more of what you're talking about i don't know if i consider it passive passive right uh, you know i mean there's other businesses that like you put an atm in a laundromat that's passive right right it's an element of it that's passive yeah and you do nothing nothing that's totally passive income but when you mm-hmm. trade your time then it's a little bit of active income it's the idea though is to cut your hours as much as possible over time by replacing yourself with staff to do it so i mean I was putting in, when I went back to work at the beginning, I was putting in like 20, 25 hours a week. When I got the staff trained, then it cut down to 10 to 15 hours a week at the store. And what that allows you to do is it's like, okay, well, I got to go to the store twice a week to do stuff, but I can now schedule that to whenever I want. That's, and that's the beauty, you know, that's how, I, you know, I got to be at all the kids sporting events and, and you know, drive, drive the soccer team to the schools, you know, and, and stuff like that, because you get to choose when you're going to put in those 10 hours or 15 right, hours. Right, right. Well, and, and I know a lot of people that kind of, you know, kind of figured out those systems and got the help that they needed. That was obviously the launching pad to add a second, third, fourth, fifth, and now eighth location. So tell us a little bit more about kind of figuring out those systems and how that that, that helped you scale. You know, we've, we've got an increasing group of the folks in the industry that are wanting to scale, you know, and again, we're not talking about hundreds or thousands or, you know, rolling up the whole industry, but we sure have a lot more uh, eight store owners now than we've had in the 29 years that I've been in the business. So uh, talk to us a little bit about taking those lessons and kind of honing those systems and how that helps you to, to scale up with multiple locations. I read a great book by Michael Gerber called The E-Myth Revisited. I remember the E-Myth, uh, E-Myth Revisited. Michael Gerber, really dynamic author. Uh, I, I, I actually listened to books on tape or, you know, through audibles or whatever. And great book. He goes through a process in the book of, Basically, he says, you, you know, you got to take every job in the business that you're that you're running, every single job there is, and define it, and give it a title, you know, and actually write out what is the job, and then you have to figure out people to to perform each of those jobs. And at the very beginning, when you start a business, you're the only one. So guess who gets to do every job, <laughs> right? You're doing the whole list. It's all you. The yeah. whole list, right? And then, and then he says, take, the, take that list and organize it. It's like from bottom to top. And the, the bottom level jobs, those are the first you hire. And then you, and then you hire the next level up and then the next level up until – you're at the very top controlling everything below you. And that's kind of when you're able to, you know, be the chairman of the board, so to speak. And you're not the one doing all the work. You're just overseeing the work. And and that's that's my end goal is to to get to be my own chairman of the board where I'm where I'm doing everything by overseeing everything and and just mm-hmm. being able to course correct course correct you know the the people actually running the businesses you know 
underneath. And, and that's really the best way to do it. So, so that's kind of how, how I approached it. And I started, I started off by, you know, getting attendance and, and doing the, the basic stuff. And, and I started adding people to the team, you know, people, you know, I, I got a good repair guy that, that could come in and, and fix stuff. And then, you know, I, I get somebody that HR is a problem. So, so how do we figure that one out? And so my wife, she, I think she's doing payroll assist with QuickBooks. So it reduces a lot of the headache from payroll. Then all of a sudden you have a scheduling thing. Well, when you have one store and three people, that's not very hard to schedule. We were doing it on a spreadsheet. Very easy, right? But as you start to grow, now all of a sudden you have a lot more people. We're up to 30 plus now and, and, you know, spreadsheets don't do it. So <laughs> the software now that we buy and, 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 and use that to help schedule and, 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 We'll send people from one store to another if we need to. And, 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 you know, we don't want to be doing all of that ourselves. So, so we now hire people to, to manage the staff. And then we have people managing the contractors. And, and so as, as we grow, we keep adding layers of people in there so that, so that we, it requires less of our time. But we also have to add in standards which is very important. See, a lot of places don't put any standards in. They just have, you know, and then the places turn to hell. And we don't want that. We want to have a, a great experience no matter which store you go in and, and so on. And so we have to teach our standards. And then, and then it's up to the managers to not only manage the crews and the staff, but, but make sure that they're following our standards and stuff like that. So let's talk about kind of the nuts and bolts of adding stores. I, I know that you've like your first store. I know you've you've acquired stores, fixed them up, reequipped them, run them better, and obviously you know dramatically changed the numbers. You've also built new stores from the ground up, and so can you kind of give our audience a little bit of you know kind of your playbook for for either of those uh, opportunities, whether you're building new or buying to retool and and spruce up. You know how, how do you approach each of those opportunities? Because obviously two very different processes. Uh, very, very true. I, th I think it comes back to also when you are looking at a specific location, whether it's an existing laundromat or a proposed new site, demographics play a large role in the decision-making process. If you're buying a, a laundromat that's not doing well and needs that sprucing up, you have to think, well, why isn't this laundromat doing well? Is it just that the owner decided not to put any money back into the business? And, and continually keep the equipment running. I mean, if half of the equipment isn't running, obviously it's not going to do well, which is often is the case when, when you're buying uh, a used laundromat for somebody who just let it go. But there could be other, there could be other things. Maybe other laundromats have opened up down the road and it put a lot of pressure on that store, uh, maybe reduce the income. So now where it may have been a profitable business before, it's now barely hanging on. And that's the motivation to sell. It's not the same business anymore. And mm -hmm. so you have to look at all those things when you are remodeling a store. But even so, when you're, when you're, it's even more important, I would say, the demographics when you're building a store. And the reason right. is you're starting from zero. At least when you buy a store, you already have a customer base, mm -hmm. as small as it may be. But if you build a store, you're at a goose egg 
And it's going to take time to ramp that up. And you have to have plenty of capital to get you through that ramp up period to profitability. But also you you have to make sure that the, there's enough business in that neighborhood uh, to support an additional laundromat. And so demographic analysis is very important. So take us into, uh, you know, let's say you've done that homework and yeah. this in this case of buying an existing store, you know, you've, you've done your homework, you looked at the demographics, you kind of determined, you know, the store is being neglected or just, you know, undermanaged and it's day one, right? You walk in the door day one on a store that you acquired that needs some help. I mean, what is that? What is that punch list? What are those first couple of things that are on your mind about, okay, I've inherited this store now. I've, I've laid out the cash. There is some existing traffic uh, coming through here. So how, how do you sort of prioritize your action steps? Because I know that you're not going to just run it the way it was. You're, you're going you're gonna to put a lot of new effort into that location you just acquired. So what, what does that hit list look like for you? Yeah, no, for sure. So you buy a store, really, you go through all this due diligence before purchasing the store to, to understand where the store is and where it's really you know, how much money it's really generating. And hopefully your due diligence was accurate enough so that the numbers are are not like my first store, but they're actually pretty close to, to what you, you've determined them to be. And for me, my, my goal is to always run it for a couple of months to establish a baseline. I really don't want to change anything if I can, just because I know where, I, I need to know where I'm starting from. And I, I think that a lot of people, when they buy something, they, they may not do that. They may not get that baseline. And then it's, it's more difficult to, to know how well what you're doing is actually affecting the numbers. So having a baseline is really important. And it's only a month or two. So, so you know, once you've established the baseline, so to answer the question, what we do right off the bat, day one, we come in and we get this big banner that says under new management and we put that on the building. Mm-hmm. And I know that because I've done it with it and without it. And I know that I'm going to get a 10% bump in business just by putting that on the building, even if I change nothing inside. And then the other thing that we do is we actually clean the store, right? So the like day one, the first thing we do is in the in, in the restaurant industry they call it a top to bottom. Literally everything from the top gets cleaned and then all the way down to the bottom. You know all the dust off the off the lighting fixtures, the ceiling gets cleaned, everything all the way down. And then depending upon how bad it looks after that, we might throw a fresh coat of paint on it. And that's it for the first mm-hmm. month or two. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, cause uh, you know, I'll take a little bit of a bump, you know, I want that baseline, but, but I don't really want to change out equipment or anything like that too. And then, and then, uh, you know, I want to see how the staff is working. You know, I, I, the reason I do those little things at the beginning is because I want the staff to know there's encouragement. It's things are going to change. And, and I think that if, because a lot of times when we buy a store, we, we'll keep the staff there. I don't want to. I don't want to displace people. I, I want people to be happy. So you know, if we if we make some general improvements, all of a sudden the staff, wow, this place looks so much nicer than it used to. You know, the owner cares, and mm-hmm. they see that right away. Mm-hmm. And it's like this is nothing. 
this is going to really change. You trust me. I see it. You don't see it yet, but I do. This place is going to look so different, but, but you just have to hang in there. Right. Because they, you know, if the, if the previous owner is selling and they kind of let it go, you know, the staff is going to feel that too. So anyway, so that's why we do what we do. And then after, after we've made, you know, made those few little modifications at the very beginning, we let it go for a month or two. And during that time, well, actually, even before we buy the store, we've already started planning what the new store is going to look like, which equipment. And usually we will replace everything, you know, unless there's something that's, that's within three years old, we might keep that. But most of the time we'll just, we'll just get rid of everything. A three-year-old washer has some resale value, so we might be able to resell it on the secondary market. My thinking is that if you have a choice to drive a brand new Cadillac or a used Hugo, which one are you going to do? <laughs> right, right. Well, so I mean that makes a lot of sense. You know, so you're establishing a baseline. You're doing the deep clean. You're going to try to buck up the staff and get them, you know, get them re-energized. And then instead of doing a piece by piece or gradual retool, you're doing the full teardown on it. But I imagine you've gotten pretty darn good at that. So are you able to keep the stores open generally during that retooling process? It depends. <laughs> Most of the time, yes, but it depends. It depends upon the individual store. So with a lot of our stores, yes, the answer was yes, we, we were able to do that. We would literally like put this queen up. And, and cut off half the store if we could. And then so we're working behind Visqueen on one side of the store until we get that nice and done, you know, and then we'll open that up and close the other side. And now all of a sudden, you know, wow, you know, it's a big difference. It, it makes it makes there a lot less available equipment when you do that at the beginning. But customers see the progress. And so customers like that. Yeah, they're with you. They want you to do this work. They yeah. want to have a nicer place to do the wash. Exactly. And then when and then when they see the difference, it's like, wow, we're so happy. That's worked out well. Uh, it takes a bit longer to do it that way, generally, but not always. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That it should take a lot longer, but it doesn't always. Sure. We could go into some horror stories if you want. <laughs> Well, I, I, I might hit you up for a war story or two here before we're uh, before we're done. But so in those cases where you are doing a, a full retool and you do need to close the store, how do you sort of mitigate the damage? Meaning, obviously, you're not generating revenue for that period of time. So just how do you kind of you know hit it and quit? Make sure that you can get that done as quickly and efficiently as possible. And so, what's your strategy going in when you need to close for the retooling? Well, so if we're going to close and do a retool through a closed store, there's a few things you got to do. I mean, you got to you got to make sure that the permits and stuff are are pulled prior to to closing and so you're ready to be able to work from day 1 from the closing. If you're doing changes that require permits and every city is different. Every municipality is different. So, so you know, some places you can you can saw cut a floor, and it's like you need a permit for that. And then another place, if you if you remove a top load washer, they want a permit. I I kid you not, it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it, you just really need to understand 
that particular location and what is required uh, and then get all that stuff lined up ahead of time. The worst thing you can do is to not understand what the city requires and go in and start doing stuff and then get shut down because mm. then you're going to be in a world of pain. And that has happened too, where I thought I knew what I was supposed to know and that was wrong. And one time that happened to me after I went to the city and said, this is what I'm doing. Oh no, you don't, don't worry about it. And then the inspector shows up and he's all like, what are you doing? It's like, well, I went to the city and they said, you know, this is who I talked to. And it's like, well, they, they told you the wrong thing. Shut it down. You know, here's a big red tag. You know, so you better, you better really know. Uh, make sure you spend some time in the planning department for sure. But then, but then the other things too is, you know, you, you have to set the, the, the crew who's going to be doing the works expectations based on how you're doing it. Right. If you're shutting down the store, it's like, you want to get a timeline because you can't be shut down forever. And a lot of times you want to know, are you the only customer that they're dealing with during your project? Or do they have other people that they're dealing with too? Good question. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, they may have multiple crews, which means that somebody's not paying attention to you at certain times. Hopefully not, but it could happen, right? And then the other thing too is a big important thing is, you know, you got to go to the landlord because if you're going to actually do things that improve the building itself, if nothing else, you're going to tell the landlord, hey, we're, we're going to shut down for a period of time to remodel. So we want to you know, let you know that. Uh, but then the secondary reason is, of course, going to ask for some TI, some tenant improvement, and see whether or not the landlord can kick in something. If you're about mm-hmm. to spend, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars improving, you know, the landlord's property, even if it is equipment that is yours you know the landlord maybe you get the landlord to paint the outside while you're doing it maybe you can you know if if they're not willing to give you free rent maybe you can get them to do something else for you there's there's a lot of it's all again it's all about negotiation and how good are you with your landlord but if if you approach it properly oftentimes you get the landlord to help you right great maybe they give you less rent or whatever, right? I mean, I was able, I was able doing doing a a remodel where it was going longer than expected. I was able to get the landlord to slide my lease out the length of the remodel because right. the remodels, yeah. right? Because because I had rent increases, uh, you know, scheduled. And so he froze that and slid it out the entire length of the remodel and then and then acted like that was really the first day of of the lease. And so, you know, little things like that, you, you don't think that that makes a big difference. But but each one of those rent increases is money in years to come that you're going to have to pay. And by pushing that out, you just save yourself a lot of money over the length of the lease. Okay. No, I mean, that's great. Cause you have to shut down all the way. Like you said, let's, let's talk to the landlord. Let's yeah. make sure we're dialed in with our crew. Let's make sure the permits are, are right. So you can uh, get that process underway and get it, get it going as, as completely as, as possible. How about getting the equipment there on time? Oh There's boy. Yeah. Nothing worse than 
then pulling everything and the equipment's supposed to be here on Monday and it shows up three weeks later. That equipment's got to make sure you got to make sure that equipment's going to get there on time. And so, again, it's a coordinating of of all the different things during that. You, you literally have to have a project plan with dependencies and so on and so forth. And then and then, and then you got to either manage that project yourself or have somebody manage it for you that's accountable. Well, to, your, to your point earlier, I mean, that's why you can't in those cases for scale, you can't afford to be doing a lot of day to day in store three or store two or store four. I mean, you've got to be fully engaged in you know the project at hand in order for that to go. And that's obviously kind of the best use of your time in that hierarchy uh, you described earlier. Like that's that's where you're going to have the most the most impact. Well, switching gears a little bit, you know, one of the things that uh, we've talked a lot about over over the years is you know your I think you most often call it kind of the laundromat lifestyle, you know, and and and, and being able to kind of you know, gain back that uh, economy of scale and time and have that flexibility and uh, but I know that it's you know it's something where you like you know you like to be able to take vacations you like to be able to you know kind of have that that balance and so you know uh, what does that look like for you you and May might be the only laundromat owners I know that talk about, you know, well, I have a personal assistant. You're like, I need to be able to optimize my time yes. and focus on the things that are most important. So you, you kind of lay out your philosophy of the laundromat lifestyle. Sure. Oh God. Now we're getting into the fun stuff. <laughs> well, I figured I figured I'd make sure we hit that before we run out of time. <laughs> well, well uh, laundromat lifestyle. I um, I really wanted to have balance in my life and, so I never, when we first got into uh, the laundromat industry in 2003, never thought that it would become a career. Again, it was, it was literally, the idea was as a safety net business. And, and when I finally stepped away from corporate America at the end of 2008, we had three laundromats. We were in escrow for a fourth laundromat and we were making more money uh, working 10 to 20 hours a week managing the three laundromats than I was making it my full-time job. And, and May was already away from her job. So, so that was a big move. And what happened was all of a sudden, you know, I went from working as an engineer, putting in 60, 65 hour weeks, plus, you know, a few hours a week doing the laundromat stuff to now getting all that time back. I want balance in my life. So now with that, you know, if now that the, that we just do laundromats and other projects and, and fun stuff that we want to do, we now have the time and the balance to be able to do that. And so uh, I call it time freedom, right? You can have financial freedom. Everybody knows financial freedom where, where it's like you know, their income that gets generated from their, from their investments whether it's businesses or, or other passive investments exceeds their monthly expenses. They have, they have, you know, financial freedom at that point. They don't have to work. They can work if they want, but they don't have to work. Well, mm-hmm. laundromats for us gave us not only the financial freedom, but the, more importantly for us, it gave us back our time. And, and by, by staffing properly, we were able to, to, you know, we add more stores but it doesn't cost us more time which if we're putting in people in place to, to help run those stores and, and, and 
we're we're just doing. I'm just trying to do that Michael Gerber thing, honestly. Right, you know, right. Comes back to that. Yeah. Trying to engineer my way out of a job. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so, well, you know, you, you, yeah. Well, you're certainly I, living that, and 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 you know, I'm, you know, and we're fortunate that part of that time freedom for you has been the ability to get engaged with Coin Laundry Association, get engaged with uh, the Laundry Cares Foundation. So, what if you could just spend a few minutes just talking about Obviously, you're you're very uh, diligent about prioritizing your time and what you spend your time on. So, why has it been important for you to volunteer for the association? You're serving as our board treasurer this year, and you've done a lot with the Laundry Cares Foundation. So, how how does that fit into the overall picture for you in May? Well, you know, it, having that time freedom gives you the time to focus you and 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 do things that you want. You 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 now get the ability to to spend your time doing things that touch your heart and and hopefully can make an impact on other people you know spending time at the church spending time you know maybe maybe uh helping food banks and and serving food to people or whatever it is that touches your heart and for us another one of those things is is giving back to the industry that gave so much to us and and that's why we we've donated our time to Laundry Cares, why we donate our time to the Coin Laundry Association, you know, the local association when we had chapters and all of that is just because we have extra time and, and you know, we wanted to help. But we, I will say we also get a chance to travel a lot. I, as I told you before, I love to travel. You know, pre-COVID, we were traveling a lot. I, I want to say in 19, we spent about four months uh, out of town over the course of the year. Every two to three weeks, we were somewhere in the world. It was pretty amazing. You know, obviously, since COVID's happened, that's been scaled way, way back. You know, we uh, haven't been able to travel quite as much as we'd like, chomping at the bits. <laughs> sure, sure. Again, it's you get to do the things that you want. Uh, and and I like to do that. Uh, I like to be able to help people out in the industry that are just getting started. I remember, you know, going through going through the growing pains and learning by the school of hard knocks, as they say. And now we can we're in a position where we have the time and and we can kind of mentor and give back a little bit too, and and try and help help the industry move in a direction that that uh, affects and touches so many more people than just laundry. And that's where laundry cares is so awesome. And I don't even have it with me, darn it. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll give you a picture. I was at a laundromat yesterday, one of my stores. We have, uh, I took a picture of a woman and her, her son, maybe four years old, reading children's books, right? Mm -hmm. Her son in the laundry while she's mm -hmm. doing her clothes. I mean, you know, that type of stuff that the Laundry Cares Foundation is doing, you know, and, and our partners that we have, you know, through the Laundry Literacy Coalition and stuff, you know, that's that's impacting mm -hmm. other people. And they don't even understand how 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 the things we do can impact other people's lives in a positive way. And that's really cool. Oh, it's awesome. And I did see that picture and it, it was always heartwarming to see that. And, and, you know, you know, you know, we're of the same mind when it comes to this opportunity and obligation to give back to the communities that have supported our, our livelihoods. And, you know, I think what you just described is, 
kind of how you're using that financial freedom and that time freedom that have come out of uh, the laundromat business to do the things you want to do and give back in the ways that you want to uh, give back. And, uh, yep. you know, as we get to the end of our, our time here, Brian, you know, maybe I'll ask you to get out your crystal ball. Uh, I know you've got a, a store you're working on now. And, you know, so you've, you study the business front to back all the time. You want, can you just give us a few minutes about, you know, kind of the near-term future of the industry for Advantage Laundry, but maybe even a little bit more broadly about what you see coming for our industry? You know, I for for the industry as a whole, I I still see I still see it being a very strong industry. I do see it's been a long time. Well, it's been a while, I, I would say, since since people have tried to do franchising. And and I see franchising models now starting to pop back up in the industry. So I think we're gonna start seeing more more franchising and and I I, I foresee over the next five years that we'll see a national franchise of at least one. You know, I think that I think that there are some economies to scale. Obviously, you can have them. Franchising models are a little bit different, but I welcome franchising models in an industry of mom and pop, uh, which is a little strange. You you might think, but I do welcome it because because what happens is when somebody is when somebody is putting so much money and energy into a specific concept, it's something that's going to have to make the industry react to it. And so, and so just like with the laundry care foundation and the replay learn centers, where we're putting in these beautiful replay learn centers and laundromats throughout the country for, for families to be able to, to read and, you know, and teach their children about literacy laundry franchises are are change are going to change the way the that stores are viewed too because they're going to have more of a corporate look to them you know think think what a mcdonald's looks like today think what you know chick-fil-a you know these restaurant chains and and other franchises in different industries have done for for those industries doesn't mean there won't be mom pop laundries because i think that Franchising in general has been tried before and it's difficult to do in our industry, but I don't think it's impossible. I do think that we're, we're going to see that. Also, there's always going to be renters and and apartment buildings, you know, big apartment complexes get built and they put in laundry centers, but it's not the same as a laundromat. Uh, they don't, they, you know, it has to be a really big center to, to justify a full-size laundromat and the other thing too is is the size of equipment it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger i'll send you some pictures of what the new store looks like that we're putting in where i have a 130 pound washer in it and two 90 pound washers and these things are so enormous it looks like I'm in a laundry processing center. These things are enormous, just absolutely enormous. And, you know, we're going to start, we've, we've been seeing and, and we'll continue to see larger equipment and larger stores. I think the smaller stores will still be around, but they'll be shrinking. The size of the overall size footprint in the industry is going to continue to increase. I think you're going to see more and more mega stores you know, of 5,000 square feet and bigger, even in California, you're starting to see some. Mm -hmm. So 
where land is very expensive, by the way. Right. So, I mean, you know, how does it all pencil out? It's a very mature industry. And and one of the things that that a lot of people have noticed in this pandemic is, okay, what are some of the industries that were hardest hit? Those make the headlines. But then the investors are looking at what are the industries that still survived and were able to stay open? And, yeah, they may have taken a hit, but they didn't get crushed. I have a lot of friends that own lots of different businesses, and some of them very sadly got got wiped out. My brother being one of them. The pandemic has really has really shown where businesses are going, and 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 there's everything's changing right now. But laundries are not going to be going away anytime soon. There's a long answer for an easy question. <laughs> no, no, I no, I like that because you know you hit on. The franchise is coming online. You've hit on, you know, the kind of resilience that's come out of the uh, essential business, larger footprints for stores, larger capacities within those footprints. So I, I do agree. I think we both agree that the future is bright for the industry and, and uh, there's still innovation to come. And uh, thanks for being part of this How's Business podcast, Brian. It was a delight to chat with you. You've been a, a good friend and a good supporter all these years. And I really appreciate you sharing some of your secrets with our audience here today. And I can't wait till we can be together again and, and talk shop some more. Super. Thank you, Brian, for inviting me to the show. Thanks, Brian. We'll see you all next time on the House Laundry House Business Laundry Podcast. Thank you for joining us on our podcast today. Be sure to subscribe to Planet Laundry at www.planetlaundry.com slash subscribe. And follow us on social media at Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube.